listens to another episode of the Dark Assassins podcast, the show that dives deep into not just technology, but the concepts, software, and procedures behind it all, and explains it so simply that even your grandma can understand it. As always, I'm your host, the Dark Assassin. So we are pretty much going to touch on every bit of technology here because as promised in last week's episode we are going to be talking why game development might just be pretty much the best way to maybe not the best but one of the best ways to kind of learn pretty much everything in regards to uh, technology, software development, obviously, computer science topics and networking and infrastructure and DevOps. I mean, there's a ton of stuff, pretty much everything that you can think of in the technology sphere. You could probably make the argument that uh, developing your own video game could probably at least touch on it in some aspect. Um, Now, not to get too far ahead of ourselves here, um, but while you could make the argument that game development could help you learn, say, networking, is it going to be as good as getting some certification like Network Plus or having a CCNA or anything like that? No, obviously no, it's not. But it can at least kind of get your feet wet and uh, give you kind of at least a basic understanding of how some of these principles and technologies work. Uh, so if you get into some other form of development or other career path or what have you, um, you'll at least have some kind of background knowledge or a baseline knowledge uh, to be able to to do that. Uh, but before we get too far into that, let's start off with this week's trivia question, tying it into home labbing as well with this week's trivia question, which is a RAID array or a redundant array of inexpensive or independent disks, again, depending on who you ask, uh, a RAID 6 configuration can afford to lose how many drives before any data is lost? So if you have a RAID 6, how many drives can you lose before any data is lost? And that is your trivia question for the week. So last week, one thing, there's a couple things that I kind of want to touch on from last week's episode um, in this week's episode. So, but for, the first thing I want to touch on is last week we talked about the new Macs and the new chips that got released. And one of my kind of, I guess, concerns or hesitations was the M3 Pro chip, specifically with the fact that it had six, at least on the upper end chip the the full flat fat one it had six performance and six efficiency cores and then the binned version had five performance and six efficiency cores and one thing i was a little unsure about was the previous chip the m2 pro had at the top end had eight performance cores and four efficiency cores i believe so that was kind of a, an area of concern of, okay, we're losing performance cores here. What's that mean for performance? And a similar thing with the GPU, too, because we, we actually lost, I think, a GPU core on the upper end. Um, but based on the testing that I've seen so far published, it seems like across the board it's a pretty solid upgrade. Um, there are some instances of about like 20% increases across the board as far as CPU performance goes between the M3 and M2 chip base chips. Um, so it seems like the, the process shrink and the architectural improvements, um, made with this M3 series of chips, uh, obviously it's going to three nanometer definitely made up for the fact um, that you lost, I guess, two performance cores in the process. Um, But as far as the GPU is concerned, it seemed to be a little bit more of a mixed bag. Um, There were some tests I saw where the GPU on the M3 chips, like, completely destroyed the M2, like, just absolutely annihilating it as far as, like, performance goes but then there were other metrics where it seemed like specifically on the m3 pro versus the m2 pro where it seemed like they were basically identical 
Um, so I guess it it, it obviously uh, goes back to that age-old question that people in technology like to give of, it depends. Um, but for those of you like me that are still rocking Intel-based machines, that really these pie-in-the-sky numbers of this much percent faster than the previous gen chip mean nothing to us, um, I think it's safe to say that it seems like M3 is a pretty solid upgrade across the board. Um, unless, of course, you're already on Apple Silicon, then I personally probably don't think you need to upgrade unless um, you're absolutely pushing your machine to the limit, which if you are one of those people, I'm pretty sure you know that. Um, but yeah, so if you're on Intel, I think it's pretty safe to say that it would be a solid upgrade for you. Um, and if you're on Apple Silicon already, um, it would still be a solid upgrade, I think. But at the same time, do you, you already dropped probably a couple thousand dollars not too long ago. So do you want to do that again? Um, of course, I'll leave that up to you. Uh, but that is one thing I wanted to touch on. And with that, I think we should get into this week's cybersecurity tip. So for this week's cybersecurity tip, this one is another uh, addition to your deli uh, drawer, I guess, in your fridge. Um, we're adding another layer of Swiss cheese. Um, so if you're not a regular listener of the podcast, um, one thing that I have kind of uh, one thing that I like to talk about when it comes to security is the the Swiss cheese approach to security and, and that's basically the idea that no matter how secure something is there's going to be holes in it kind of like a piece of Swiss cheese but if you can layer those pieces of cheese if you can layer enough of them you should have it there's it, the those holes will like overlap on each other and you know you'll be more secure that way obviously uh the only truly 100% secure system is the one that is completely powered off and disconnected from everything um but obviously the more layers that you can add the more secure you will be so with that in mind this week's cybersecurity tip is that you should set up a demilitarized zone or a DMZ Anywhere that you have public-facing sites, applications, or basically anything that's external that the public internet is able to access, you should have that in a DMZ. And for those of you who aren't necessarily um, cybersecurity network specialists, um, you might not really understand what that means. Um, if you're like me before I kind of started you know, in the realm of cybersecurity, when you think DMZ, you're probably thinking of like that that line between North and South Korea, probably. Um, but in terms of networking, the DMZ kind of works in a very similar fashion. So the ideal setup for a DMZ is is you have your the, the external internet, so the public internet, and then you have that you have your first firewall. So basically the firewall that uh, protects everything behind it, like your LAN, DMZ in this case, and, and, and everything from the internet. Then behind that firewall, that's where you have your DMZ. And then behind that, you have another firewall that leads to your local area network or your LAN. So the idea being... You want to segment your DMZ off from the rest of your network so in the event that someone can break through the firewall and can break through into the DMZ and like take control of one of the, the devices there, like maybe um, they perform some kind of exploit um, on your server or they send a malicious packet uh, through some protocol that you're running and they can get like a root shell or something and have basically admin access to do whatever they want. Um, the idea being with the DMZ is that then they won't be able to laterally move to other things on your network that you would uh, more care that you would care about more. Like say they they wouldn't be able to then you know hack into your web server 
And then once they hacked into your web server, they can go and deploy some ransomware on your NAS and encrypt all your files. And that obviously wouldn't be good. Um, so, so basically, the it goes back to this idea of containment is key. You want to limit the access to it. And that's where that second firewall comes into play. So you can more, uh, so you can better uh, determine valid traffic versus invalid traffic. Plus, adding an additional firewall there just makes it that much harder for an attacker, assuming that they would gain remote control of, say, a system that's in the DMZ. They would then have to find a way to transverse through the other firewall in order to get into your to your other network. So again, we're just layering on those pieces of Swiss cheese uh, to make it harder for an attacker uh, to break in. Um, because like I said, at the end of the day, the last thing you want is for say a threat actor to exploit one of your publicly facing servers, whether that's like a, if you're an enterprise, whether that's like a mail server, um, web server, some application server that you're running, you know, whatever it is, um, they, they're able to hack that and then pivot and deploy some ransomware throughout your network and totally wreck you. Because, yeah, if they, say, take down your web server, that's kind of inconvenient. Um, but theoretically, if you have you know good backups like you should, um, it shouldn't be too hard uh, to rebuild that. Plus, um, if you have your, your web server and the website contents itself in version control, which, again, you should, uh, it should be fairly trivial to get that website back up. Um, so it's really more of an inconvenience than ever everything or than anything rather uh, but if they completely destroy your network because uh, they they did some pivoting and lateral movement um, then you're in for a a, a much worse time um, so that's basically the main point of the DMZ is to just add another layer of segmentation to your network and basically keep the devices that could potentially um, have bad actions from malicious actors gaining access to, um, things that touch the outside internet, uh, just keeping those segmented from your local network and your local traffic um, can better better protect you. Obviously, not a foolproof plan. Like not like there's like I said, there's nothing in uh, security that's a foolproof plan aside from unplugging your computer and powering it off and sitting it in the corner where uh, no one can touch it or do anything with it. But um, like I, but like I said, just adding these additional layers is is definitely beneficial. So that is your cybersecurity tip for the week. And the other thing I wanted to circle back on from last week was the whole wake on land situation. So I know I threw in a little, um, you know, me from the future um, with that, that done goof I did call it, say, saying multicast when in fact it should have been broadcast. But I kind of wanted to go a little bit into why we use broadcast for wake on LAN rather than a specific IP address. Um, so the reason for this is even if a device has a static IP address, it's not guaranteed that wake on LAN would work because IP addresses, as we'll, we'll get into in a little bit here, are a layer three when it, in terms of the network stack is, is a layer three thing. And when it comes to layer three, the only way you can get between devices at layer three is through routing. So if you don't have a route established between you and the IP you're trying to get to, you're not going to be able to get there. So even if a device has a static IP address, it's not necessarily a guarantee that it's going to have a route established to get to it. So even if you are sending the wake on land packet to the correct IP address, you're not necessarily guaranteed that they will receive it because if they're if the cached path or whatever on your local machine is gone or on your router is gone and there's no definitive way to get to that host, then you're kind of out of luck. Um, so in theory, though, you could guarantee this if you did something like you you manually assigned IP addresses on your switch, for example, on like a port level basis. So if you're assigned 
um, on your Switch that, you know, port 52, or that's that's kind of high up. <laughs> well, I guess you could have a port 52 on your Switch if you have a, a, a massive one. Uh, but say port 13, you have assigned to 192.168.1.15, say, um, then there's a chance that, you know, you would be able to send your packet, the switch would know that that IP address is on this port and be able to send it along the correct way and it could work then. Another thing you could do is like on your router if you set up some kind of IP MAC based mapping. So you set this IP address points to this MAC address. Um, that's another way that you could potentially get around it. But again, Typically, the broadcast address is used because, um, as the name suggests, it broadcasts the message to everything on the subnet. Um, and while it technically is layer 3, it has a layer 3 component to it, it also is has a, a layer 2 level to it as well. So we're talking about these different layers, so I think it's time that we probably refresh ourselves on the OSI or the TCP IP model. Um, so in a nutshell, both of these are basically the same, the main difference being that the OSI model has seven layers um, compared to the TCP. TCP IP model, which has five. Uh, but if you really look look at it, the, the five through seven layers of the OSI model basically are kind of the layer five model uh, when it comes to TCP IP. So getting into the layers here. So we have the first layer, which is the physical layer. So this is your ones and zeros, uh, the cable that's, you know, doing the actual transfer of the data. Or if you're using Wi-Fi, the data stream, I guess, going through the air. And then layer two is the data link layer. So this is your MAC address data. Layer three is your network layer. So these are the IP addresses that you need to do routing to get between the IP addresses. And then you have the transport layer, which is your UDP or your TCP, which is basically kind of the protocol that's being used. Are you just firing the messages off and don't care what happens like you do with a wake on LAN? Or do you want to get a response back from the server or the client letting you know that the connection was indeed received? And then, of course, you have the fifth layer, which is the application layer. Um, again, the OSI model kind of breaks this up a little more into a little more fine detail, but in a nutshell, you, then you have the application layer, which are things like HTTP, SSH, email, you know, anything that uses network protocols to interact and send data, that's the application layer. So getting back to where we were, um, since, so in order, like I kind of mentioned, in order to have an IP address, uh, you need routing, which is layer three. Um, so if you don't have a route established to the IP address you want to get to, you're obviously not going to be able to access it. So imagine you tell some random kid off the street that, to give this letter to John. If the kid doesn't know where John lives that letter's not getting delivered because there's no the kid doesn't know the route established to get to John. So that's basically if you told your router, hey, I want to get to this IP address, but the router doesn't have a route for it, it's not going anywhere. Uh, but instead, if you take the broadcast approach and you tell the kid off the street, hey, give this, give these letters to every single house in the neighborhood, then John's eventually is going to get that letter because he's in that neighborhood and everyone else is just going to kind of disregard it. Um, so that's basically how the how the broadcast works in the sense with in, in combination with Wake on LAN which basically how it works is you send out this blast message to every device on the subnet or in the neighborhood, if you will. And then the because of how the wake on land packet is structured, it has the, the MAC address kind of baked into the packet. So everyone that doesn't have that MAC address is just going to ignore it. And then the device that actually has that MAC address will then wake up and boot and turn on and all that good stuff. Um, so, so yeah, so the easiest 
solutions that I was kind of thinking on how to to fix my issue because if you'll recall back to last week the issue the reason why this all came up was because in order to do broadcast sending messages via broadcast or multicast or anything like that on iOS you have to have this entitlement from Apple which you have to have a develop paid developer account for and then you have to kind of like fill out some application or something and then you have to there's there's a whole process basically in a nutshell I don't have it so I can't send out broadcast messages so my thinking was I could potentially basically create some simple dummy server that basically would act as kind of like a proxy of sorts uh, to basically forward the messages that I wanted to send out. So basically I would set, rather than setting an IP address for each device like I was currently doing, basically what I do is I just set the IP address for my proxy server, if you will, and then I send it the, the wake on LAN packet and then when that server receives the packet from me, it just sends out, basically just forwards that as a broadcast message to send out. And then that would essentially perform the same same task. But at the same time, I, I kind of felt like it wasn't really all that worth it. Um, now, you basically could go as stingent or you could basically basically... I'm saying basically a lot. Um, sky's the limit in terms of how complex you would make this server. You could literally make it as simple as kind of what I just described. It listens for messages and then sends those messages out via broadcast. Or you could do make it smart in the sense that you could add some like error checking and handling to make sure that do some kind of basic validity checking, that kind of stuff. So, so you could definitely kind of you know, go all out if you wanted to. Um, but personally, as just kind of a little side project, I'm not sure if this is actually something I'm going to plan on doing. Um, I kind of have kind of tied up with uh, personal projects, as, you, as you've definitely heard if you've listened to the podcast. So this might be something that I come back to like later on down the line, but I don't necessarily have any plans at the moment to necessarily implement that server. But it was something that I was kind of thinking about. Um, but I think, uh, speaking of things that I was thinking about and doing, uh, let's get into what nerdy stuff have I been up to this week. So, this week was quite interesting because I'm trying to remember when it was. It was a few months back, maybe even close to a year ago now at this point. I had basically completely rewrote my server connect program i didn't like change the language from python it's still it was still written in python um, but if you've actually looked at the the source code for it it is one like 800 line script which if i'm being honest <laughs> was kind of getting to the point where it was becoming a little bit of a pain to manage uh, because it, it would just due to how long it was. Um, it's It wasn't that like I didn't write it good in the sense that it was all kind of spaghetti code. It wasn't anything like that. Like I had functions and everything for stuff. But when you have a, a file that's that long uh, trying to find stuff, you're pretty much just doing control F all the time. But or command F, depending on what platform you're on. Um, but the problem is, depending on how you named your functions, you might get a lot of hits that have nothing to do with the function. Um, so it can be kind of a pain to try to find stuff, even doing a control F or command F or whatever. Um, so a f I guess probably close to a year ago, I decided to modularize the script and basically create different files for each of the different like subtasks that the the script could do so i basically had a file that would handle the wake on land support a file that would handle doing the upgrade uh, the automatic upgrade thing uh, a file that would handle updating the connections a file that would handle uh, doing scp so i basically had a file for basically all the subtasks that the the uh, script could do. Uh, the problem was I didn't have a good way to 
update current users, I guess, was was my thing. Because the problem was is I was able to compile, uh, putting that in heavy air quotes because this is Python after all, uh, but I was able to compile all of the different all those files into a single .py file that could be ran with python but the issue i ran into was unlike a singular python script i wasn't able to just do kind of like a dot backslash and run the command run the run the script like i could before so that was going to break compatibility with current um, Linux and Mac OS users. Windows was fine, surprisingly. Yeah, I usually have problems with Windows, but Windows was actually fine because in order to actually get functionality in the first place on Windows, I had to write a, at least functional with how I wanted it to be, where you just type connect and then whatever you want for as far as the, the commands go. Um, but, uh, so I already had a batch file that basically handled all that, so that wasn't an issue. But on macOS and Linux, I pretty much just had one of those um, those ba- shebang- shebangs, is that what they call them? Uh, you know, the pound um, exclamation mark and then the path to the thing to run the file so you can do the dot backslash or just type the the name of the application or whatever. So... Because it was essentially compiled, if you will, if I if I did the normal method of how I would do upgrades, it would basically break because you couldn't run the program that way anymore and it would cause issues. So I pretty much shelved the project, but I decided to take another look at it and I pretty much decided to go with it and reworked some things, redid how the upgrades works and... Currently now, it is working. I, I called it version 4.0. Um, so the, the basically the main difference in the updates was I made kind of a, a temporary, I called it like a bridge release to basically bridge you from the previous way that you would do updates and whatnot to the new version, which basically was taking the upgrade code that I wrote for the new version and just pasting it into the previous massive monolith script so the script will do what it normally does pull the update from my website and then when you try to up upgrade again it'll then go to github to actually pull the updates and the reason why this works is i was able to basically the so every time i do a release for this i kind of package everything up so what the script does when it looks for an upgrade is goes out to github and uses the GitHub API to basically see what the latest version is, compare that to the current version. If so, it'll download the latest update, kind of unpack it, install it, and be good to go. Um, and it also has the added benefit of being able to actually pull the release notes in, which is, is kind of cool, I guess. Um, so that was kind of a big update that I was working on this week. Um, I think it's definitely going to make the code a lot more manageable and easier to read and kind of work with now that everything's kind of broken up into smaller files. Um, so that was something that I was pretty happy about. And as far as other updates, I discovered a bug in my command prompt bypass batch script. So if you're unfamiliar, I wrote a batch script that'll basically restore the functionality of a command prompt on Windows if you run into an issue where you see a message saying that your the command prompt has been disabled by your administrator. I did a whole episode on, you know, that whole process and I have a blog post on it. Um, but I basically found an issue and I think I kind of knew this was an issue um, where depending on what command you would type, if it included quotes, you could potentially have, I guess we'll say undefined behavior in the sense that you could get something, you wouldn't necessarily get your desired result. Um, so I ended up fixing that, getting that all working. So now at this point, it's basically a one-to-one drop-in replacement uh, for the command prompt. The only difference is um, it it still doesn't have support for setting 
like local environment variables. And the main reason for this, I don't want to get super into the weeds, but how it bypasses the the check of it being a command prompt is it runs it, it basically uses a one-time use of the command prompt to execute a command and then exits the command prompt. So if you were to set a local variable, it would just be immediately erased because you're only using one-time sets um, for the command prompt, one-time commands, and then it basically going away. Um, so, yeah, so that's why one of the reasons I haven't implemented. But... With that said, for about 30 lines of batch file code, I would say it's pretty darn good <laughs> as far as being like a one-to-one -one replacement um, for the command prompt. And to be honest, if you don't even use like setting of local variables, environment variables and like in, in the command prompt when you're using it, at this point it is a one-to-one drop-in replacement um so that that was something i was pretty hyped about and then the the last thing i want to touch on before we get into the meat and potatoes of this episode is i got a site-to-site -site vpn working and if you're kind of wondering what that means or you thought i already had a vpn set up i did and i do but one of the issues i ran into was i I could connect to my LAN, no problem with the using my VPN. But one thing that was a little bit of a problem was I couldn't have devices on my LAN connect to clients of the VPN because of IP differences. And if you remember back to when we were talking about the wake on LAN discussion with Layer 3, uh, if you don't have routing established between the IP addresses, you're not going anywhere. So because the IP addresses were different and the IPs of the clients were basically behind the VPN server, kind of on their own network, there was no route between the LAN clients versus the clients of the VPN. So that's why they couldn't talk to each other. So I basically decided to create a WireGuard VPN on my PFSense router so there would actually be routes uh, between the two networks so you could actually get from one to the other um, and got that working all good um, so the main reason why you would potentially want to do something like this is it's great if you're trying to link two offices together for example or you want to have your off-site backup be able to essentially look like it's directly on your LAN you could basically write some kind of bash bash script or like a set a a cron job or something that basically on boot up it'll it'll run a script um, to basically auto connect to the VPN into your network so it'll it's basically like it's directly on your LAN. Um, another thing that this could be useful for is if you want to connect friends or family's houses together. Um, so if one of you, say, has a, a media library on like Jellyfin or Plex or something, and you want others to be able to access it, you could potentially do a site-to-site -site connection like that as well. Um, so that was kind of the, the one of the reasons why I wanted to go with PFSense. I'm, I'm sure I probably eventually could have figured it out Um with the the current vpn i had um but i i didn't really feel like doing all that work and pfsense was a lot easier to set up because pfsense is literally a router already um well and a firewall too um so it, being able to configure everything was a lot a lot easier it was pretty much um you know add the install wire guard configure a couple things set some firewall rules and off to the races um and then another, i guess another the, the other thing um where this could be uh valuable as well is if you had say a, a virtual private server or vps in the cloud somewhere that you wanted basically local access to um, you could again kind of write a script to have it auto connect uh, to the vpn so that you can access it um, or if you have a a server in a colo or a co-location um, that could be another option too uh, if you're not familiar with what a co-location is it's basically a data center like a legitimate data center that you can pay to rent rack space and you can put your own server in there and they'll 
basically give you, I think, a like network drop and power cables, and you basically pay for the space and I think the electricity, and there might be a couple other things, but um, basically a good way to have kind of like an off-site server. Um, so that would be another case where you could have some kind of script for it to auto-connect into your local network, um, so it's basically like it's in your house, essentially. Um, so that was something that I, I was pretty hyped about as well. And with that, I think we should probably get into the meat and potatoes, which is why game development is so good, um, and why I'm basically calling it the Swiss Army Knife of IT, if you will. Um, Now, kind of like I mentioned at the top of the episode, is it the best at all of these? Absolutely not. But at the same time, you could make the argument that a Swiss Army Knife isn't going to be the best screwdriver. Um, does it have a screwdriver? Yes, it does. But is it going to be as good as a legit screwdriver? No, not not even close. But it can help you in a pinch. Um, so with that, I think we should kind of, I want to get into the, the different aspects of why game development is so so good and beneficial so first off probably the most obvious is if you develop your own game it'll improve your software development skills i know that one right here sherlock holmes in this one uh with how how unobvious that one was um so obviously you know if you're creating a game you're writing code for the game um you're obviously going to learn a good amount about software development and piggybacking off of that uh algorithms and data structures so anyone that has programmed a game before or is thinking about programming a game algorithms and data structures i mean that's basically the core of software development Um, but i wanted to highlight these specifically because depending on what how what kind of game you're making these algorithms and data structures could potentially uh, get fairly complex and would really help you learn and better understand um, how they work um, specifically if you're trying to implement a game that already exists kind of getting getting to understand how the algorithms that they wrote kind of work or if you're creating something brand new from scratch, designing your own algorithms yourself uh, to try to you know make them as optimized as possible, um, or try to find the best way to come up with a solution. You know, there's a lot of ways that you can really dig into algorithms. Um, trying to develop a game, um, if you're, I mean, you know, looping through, checking to see if. Uh, you know, you have inventory in your bag or um, the checks for, you know, bounds checking and, you know, navigating through all the collision objects. And, and there's a lot of algorithms that go on behind the scenes um, of video games. And if you're like me, whenever you play video games, um, you kind of lose, it, it kind of loses the magic a little bit sometimes because you're sometimes thinking of how the developers implemented a certain feature so I think I mentioned it on the podcast um, a while ago where like you know I'll be playing a video game and I'll just be trying to think behind the scenes about how you know some aspect or feature of the game I'm playing was implemented Um, and sometimes I, I break the immersion for myself because I'm too busy trying to focus on how the game was programmed rather than just enjoying the game um i think the same goes for uh those in like film industry in the film industry like they're kind of focused on how a shot was was done or how how the angle was captured or the lighting or whatever that they can't like actually appreciate uh the the film itself or if you're into um like science fiction or something but you're also uh like a, a physicist or astronomer or something, you know, you you have this battle of thinking like how 
you know, does the math actually work here um, rather than, you know, just kind of focusing and enjoying the movie or the book or whatever. Um, so kind of like the same thing with me when it comes to video games. But algorithms, definitely a big thing that you will have to work a lot with uh, when doing any kind of game development. And then data structures being another one, because obviously somehow, some way you're going to have to represent your data. Um, I'm assuming that you... Unless you're doing some, like, text-based game, you'll probably need some kind of data structure uh, in order to capture the data. For instance, if you're creating some kind of um, RPG or role-playing game, you're going to have to have probably some sort of data structure to keep track of the user's inventory. Um, if you have are creating, in my case, a Pokemon game, you're going to have to have a ton of different data structures for how you um, encapsulate the Pokemon themselves, how you store them in their various potential configurations, um, parties, boxes, you know, all that good stuff. Um, there's, there's a lot of ways that there's a lot of data structures that have to go in to video games as well. Um, so those are, I guess, kind of the gimmies, if you will. I think those are, those are the pretty obvious ones. Um, but then we get into some more ones that you might not necessarily think about. And one, another thing that game development can really help you with is understanding computer architecture as a whole. So depending on what platform you're developing your game for, you're going to have to get an understanding of how that specific platform is architected in order to optimize your game and program it accordingly. So for example, if you're trying to like actually program for a specific hardware device, like if you want to write a video game for like a Game Boy Advance or you want to write a video game for, for the PlayStation 3 or you want to write a game for the Xbox Series S or you know whatever the case is, um, the architecture and how you kind of design your, your game is going to vary uh, between those. Now, if you're just creating a basic desktop game that will work on, you know, Mac OS, Linux, Windows, that kind of a thing, this isn't as big of a deal but it is still something that you're going to want to really look into uh, especially if you're trying to make your game optimized uh, in terms of both performance and memory management um, and kind of understanding how um, the architecture itself is structured and how data structures are passed around and making sure that your structures are aligned properly we talked a few weeks ago um, about, you know, bit alignment and why that's so important on how you should make sure your structures are aligned to to make sure your mem you're optimizing your memory usage. Uh, because even if you might not think it's that big of a deal, you know, wasting, say, six bytes per, per structure, once you start to scale that up to, like, the actual size that the video game's going to be, it adds up pretty quickly. Um, especially if you're combining multiple structures that aren't properly aligned together and not aligning them there, you could potentially, it, it's basically a compounding effect and, and it grows exponentially. Now, when we talked about that memory alignment thing, generally speaking on modern hardware, we're kind of spoiled as developers where we have gigabytes worth of RAM. So it's generally not that big of a deal. But if you ever have to deal with any kind of embedded systems or if you're trying to write a video game for like a small handheld device like for the Game Boy or the, the GameCube or, you know, some old console that you want to port a game to, you really, really have. This is where it really becomes a major factor in making sure that your your memory is properly aligned. Um, so understanding the the computer architecture that you're dealing with is definitely something that you'll probably have to take into account um, if you're developing your own video game. And another, I guess, slightly obvious one is graphics. Now, I've talked many times on the podcast how graphics is like the bane of my developer existence, um, but depending on how you're handling your graphics, it could potentially be a computer architecture type 
category or it could just be kind of a abstraction API framework SDK type thing, uh, depending on what you're doing. Um, if you are, say, writing for an embedded system like a, an old console, then you're going to have to really understand the architecture of how it's designed in order to properly display the graphics. Uh, similarly, if you aren't using a pre-made graphics library and you're doing all that you're right, or essentially writing your own graphics library. Uh, that's another situation where you're really going to have to understand not only the computer architecture, but the GPU architecture as well in order to be able to properly display your graphics and get that communication uh, between your program and the graphics card. Um, so definitely something else that you're going you're gonna to learn about uh, is how to do graphics programming um, if you're doing any kind of game development. Now, I guess if you're using like a legitimate game engine, you'll be a little bit abstracted from this because you can kind of click and drag things. Um, but even still, you probably will have to deal with um, some some graphical programming and understanding how graphics work, especially when it comes to things like collisions. Um, that's going to be one thing that you're you're probably going to have to deal with, regardless of if you're doing using a graphics engine or not. Um, and another programming computer science based topic that you'll run into if you're doing any kind of game development is state machines. So we talked about this a couple weeks ago um, in regards to state machines. Basically this idea of you have a, a variable, generally kind of like an enum of sorts, that basically defines what state of execution in the program you're in. And then based on that state of execution, you display something different to the screen, you perform a different function, you know, whatever the case may be, depending on your game. Uh, keeping track of what state you're in is pretty crucial um, in making sure your game runs and plays smoothly um, and displays things when it should and handles things when it should and, and all that good stuff. So state machines, definitely another computer science topic that you're going to have to learn and understand um, when doing game development. And it's a great way uh, to take the foundations of computing, basically the most, at least in my opinion, the most boring part of the computer science degree because it's all like theoretical and there's no actual coding involved and you take that theory and put it into practice so state machines definitely going to have to to learn those and here's one that doesn't necessarily specifically tie in to computer science and technology itself but if you recall back a few months ago we talked about how software development like meets physics. And here is another thing that you'll that you might have to deal with if you're doing game development. And the reason I say might is this is very dependent on what type of game you're developing. Um, so depending on what kind of game you're developing, you might have to factor in gravity to things. You might have to factor in projectile motion, aerodynamics. Uh, it really depends on what kind of game you're developing. Now, theoretically, I guess you wouldn't have to take this stuff into account. Um, but depending on how realistic you want your game to look and feel, it's something you should take into account. And this would actually be another place where algorithms would kind of come in, you know, having to go through all these different calculations and, you know, uh, specifically like I'm thinking, you know, aerodynamics and projectile motion, uh, you know, taking into account, you know, the winds current, you know, wind speed or aerodynamics of uh, the projectile, the car, you know, whatever the case may be, the person falling, I don't know, um, take all that into account and then calculate, you know, how things react, you know, that another great great use of algorithms there um so another another instance where yeah you think game development oh it's just writing code but there's actually you know a lot more to it than simply just you know click clacking away being a code monkey uh, there's a lot of other other principles that kind of get involved uh, when you start getting really into game development and another aspect which again you may or may not have to deal with but probably might is networking. 
Um, so I guess this is kind of heavily dependent on the kind of game you're making, but if you want to have any sort of multiplayer uh, component to it, unless you bake in like being able to use multiple controllers or multiple keyboard and mice, that kind of thing on the same machine, if you're doing any other kind of multiplayer, you're going to have to deal with networking. And there's a good chance you're probably going to have to come up with your own networking protocol. Um, so that will give you a, a real quick um, education on how networking works and writing clients and servers and all that good stuff. Um, so if you're doing game development and want any kind of um, multiplayer aspect... Uh, you're definitely going to have to deal with networking. But even if you aren't doing any kind of multiplayer, you still might have to deal with networking depending on how you want to handle updates to your game or any kind of DLC or downloadable content for your game. Because if you want to do any kind of automatic updates or DLC or anything like that, you're going to have to do networking because you're going to have to have the application reach out to somewhere to check for updates or check for DLC or whatever and download that and install those updates or install that DLC or whatever the case may be. So networking, I think, at this point is probably, it's safe to say, it's going to be a guarantee for your game unless... Your idea of your game is uh, once it's done, it's done, and it's never getting any updates. And if it does get updates, you have to re-download the new version, um, which you definitely could do that. Um, but I would personally recommend doing the automatic, not necessarily automatic updates, but the ability to check for updates. And if there are updates, pull them down and update the, the game itself. Um for a couple of reasons. One, it's convenient for the end user. And two, what a heck of a learning experience that would be to re to d understand the networking behind it, you know, the, the network protocols involved of reaching out and parsing, you know, responses from servers and all that stuff and downloading the data and extracting it and installing it, all that good stuff. Um, so it's it's a great learning experience for you. It makes the life of your end users a lot easier, a lot better. So it's really a win-win for everyone because you're learning, you're making your user's life easier. I mean, what more, what more can you ask for, right? Um, so networking, definitely something that you will almost certainly have to deal with when it comes to developing a game. And another big point is cybersecurity. So we talk a lot about a fair bit of about cybersecurity on the podcast and depending on how again this is kind of dependent on how your your game is structured in terms of how much cybersecurity plays a role. But if you're dealing with any sort of user input, cybersecurity instantly becomes plays a role because uh, if you're dealing with user input, as I've mentioned many times, always assume that the user input is malicious unless you verify and determine otherwise. So if you have any portion of your code that interacts with user input one you need to make sure that the buffer allocated to the user input won't be overflowed so they can perform a buffer overflow exploit on you and two you have to make sure that the input they give you is actually legitimate and won't oh i don't know run an sql command to drop your entire database uh, <laughs> Um, that obviously won't be good. So verifying and validating user input is definitely something that you'll have to take into account um, in terms of game development when it comes to making your game. But also, if you are doing any kind of hosting for your game, so going back to the networking aspect here, if you have any kind of like game server running to allow people to play together or allow people to communicate or transfer data between one another, or any, any kind of server application that you have, 
One thing you'll have to account for is denial of service attacks or distributed denial of service attacks or any other kind of network-based attack that a malicious actor could try to take down your server. Um, And going back to the user input aspect, if you do have a server running to accept, you know, to handle user input for whether it's multiplayer or transferring data between one another, um, you'll definitely want to make sure that you are validating every piece of data that comes through that server to make sure that it's not some malicious actor trying to, you know, do some 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 nasty things. Um, so yeah, another instance where cybersecurity will definitely play a role if you are developing a video game. Um, Another aspect I want to touch on, too, is DevOps. So while this is probably maybe something you won't necessarily have to deal with, I would recommend doing it because automating your building, your testing, and your deployments makes your life so much easier, Um, especially... (laughs) Uh, once your code base becomes quite large, as code bases generally tend to be for video games, uh, being able to perform all of the automated testing, building, and deploying of your code makes your life a heck of a lot easier. Um, so personally, if you don't have a build system set up and you're manually compiling every single one of your source files and then manually linking them together... Um, first off, what are you doing? Um, I, which I guess on the one hand, if you are that person, I think I first off have to just straight up applaud you for your determination because I would go insane if I had to, if for the game that I'm developing, if I had to manually compile and link every single one of those source files together, all that typing and all... No, thank you. So if you are that person, first off, I'm not sure how you do it. Uh, But second off, you need to get a build system in place to automate your life because it'll make you definitely a lot more productive. um, That is for sure. Um, But the other thing, too, is, you know, having some kind of CICD pipeline isn't necessarily as critical when you're in the development stages of the video game. But once you get to the point where it's like, actually legitimate game and is playable um this is where that would become a lot more more important um and specifically if you're like i mentioned previously if you're running some kind of server for the game um having an automatic deployment feature is definitely something that would be very beneficial to you um and specifically going back to that aspect if you're doing any kind of hosting for the game whether that's a server or whatever uh being able to manage that infrastructure through some kind of DevOps pipeline uh, will definitely make your life a heck of a lot easier. Um, So I would definitely recommend doing that. And I guess the last thing that I want to touch on, I'm probably missing some things, but the last thing that I want to touch on is probably the um, talking point of of the year Uh, That, of course, being artificial intelligence. And this one is might be another obvious one, Um, depending again, depends on what your game is. But there's if you have any kind of enemies in your game, you're probably going to want to have some form of artificial intelligence for those enemies. So they're not just performing actions randomly um, and really easy to defeat. So you'll probably want to have some kind of intelligence in there. Um, Whether you are doing some kind of heuristic-based artificial intelligence, again, uh, going back to the algorithms portion, uh, if you're doing any kind of artificial intelligence programming into your video game, there will be algorithms involved with that. Um, So... Whether you're doing a heuristic-based approach, which kind of essentially probabilities, you know, what's having the AI kind of have some logic on what's the best decision to do given some previously uh, weighted choices and inputs from you, the user, uh, against them. Um, Whether you train your own machine learning model that you then integrate into your video game. You know, whatever the case is, if you have any kind of enemies that you have to go up against or fight or or whatever, you're going to have to have some artificial intelligence baked in there. Um, And 
don't get me wrong, when you're first starting out, you, it'll probably be pretty rudimentary and pretty simple and basic. Um, but then as you kind of, you know, learn and, you know, develop this, you'll, you'll get better and you'll improve. Um, and kind of, you know, as the video game scales, right, you know, when you start out in a new video game, the AI is always pretty terrible um just like your ai and is probably going to be pretty terrible when you first start creating your first one i know um when i first started creating ai for video games that i would make they were pretty pretty dumb um uh and the the going back to the pokemon game that i made um the currently the two ais that i have written are pretty pretty dumb um, the one just randomly picks a move that it's going to use against you. The other one, it randomly decides based on, like, I think a probability of half the time it's going to go for, I think, an attacking move. Half the time it's going to go for a stat. No. What was it? I think 20. No, I think it was 25% of the time it'll go for an attacking move if it has one. 25% of the time it'll go for a status move if it has one. And then 50% of the time it'll just pick a move at random. So pretty dumb, but there is at least maybe a shred of intelligence there. Maybe. Um, but again, this would be, you know, obviously be for early game enemies. And later on, uh, the AI would get smarter, obviously. But again, that's going back to also touching on the algorithms approach too. Um, and here also, in far, as far as AI, probably, you know, pulling into the heuristics based and taking in more input as far as what the actual current state of the game of the battle is the current state of the current user's health the opponent's health any held items that kind of a thing and being kind of more situationally aware and taking those aspects into account into the algorithm itself um, in order to make a smarter version um, so that's another aspect of game development that you'll probably have to deal with is some kind of form of artificial intelligence whether that's heuristic based whether that's just brute force algorithm based whether that's um you make your own machine learning model and whatever the case is uh you will almost certainly have some form of artificial intelligence in your game that you'll have to program for um so that is most of the points that i wanted to cover i'm sure i'm probably missing some um, but those, I think, are kind of the key things that I wanted to to talk about where game development, as you can kind of see, kind of runs the gambit uh, in terms of touching on pretty much every aspect of computer science and even IT in general. Uh, because if you're writing just a simple, you know, desktop application to, I don't know, sort your files or something, um, yeah, that's great, but that won't, you know touch you at all in the networking sphere that won't give you any any uh, AI based um, experience or that won't really give you much cybersecurity experience um, or any infrastructure experience um, but game development obviously if you want to if you want to be able to save the progress of the user which I would think you'd probably want to do you'll probably have to do some kind of you know file management whether that's reading in the saved data and then saving it back out at the bare minimum or some other kind of file management um, or if you or I guess you potentially wouldn't even have to do that if you wanted to go straight old school style um, I don't know if, how many of you guys remember this you know back in the day where you didn't really have a save file uh, but once you completed a level you would get some kind of code that you had to manually enter in if you wanted to return to where you were in the game um, so I clearly have vivid memories of writing these codes down on like a sticky note or something uh, so I'd be able to remember where I was in the game and be able to get back to where I was. Um, so I guess technically if you if you wanted to go that route, you definitely could and you wouldn't really have to deal with any kind of like file operations at all. Um, uh, but I guess going back to, to that, that is another aspect of game development where you would kind of have to have some kind of understanding of the operating system you're developing for. Um, especially in terms of if you're doing any kind of reading and writing of files as far as like save data or especially if you're doing any kind of 
updates as far as like installing new updates, figuring out where you have to put files to make sure they install properly and kind of getting an understanding of the operating system. Um, Another aspect of game development that you might not think about on the surface, uh, but is definitely something that you'll have to take into account. Um, And we talked about one thing you have to take into account potentially is any kind of like hardware administration if you're like hosting a server or something. And when it comes to hardware, uh, one thing you'll probably have is RAID setup, which is a fantastic segue into the trivia question for this week, which is RAID, a RAID 6 configuration can afford to lose how many drives before any data is lost? And if you said OneDrive, you are thinking of RAID 5, my friend, because RAID 6, you can lose two drives before you're at risk of losing any data. Um, So RAID 6, you can lose two drives and don't have to worry about losing data. Although I guess it should be mentioned if you are running a RAID 6 and you lose two drives, um, you definitely want to start rebuilding that array because you're on borrowed time. <laughs> because uh, one of the places where you're almost most likely, you're, you're there's a higher chance of you losing a drive is during the resilvering process or the process of rebuilding the array due to all the read, write, and calculations that have to go on in order to rebuild the array there's puts a lot of strain on the drives um so yeah you definitely don't want to be in that situation if you can avoid it but at least raid 6 does give you that flexibility where you can lose two drives uh and at that point you don't have to worry necessarily about losing any data but you definitely want to rebuild that array asap um so if you learned anything in this episode, I know we covered a decent amount um, in terms of game development. Um, definitely share it around. If you enjoyed, comment, uh, send me an email, uh, subscribe to the podcast, give it a rating and review, all that good stuff. Uh, if you have any questions about this episode or topics for future episodes, you can feel free to shoot me an email at contact at darkassassinsinc.com. The link for that, as usual, is down in the show notes below. And that's going to do it for me in this episode of the Dark Assassins podcast. Until next time, my fellow assassins, remember... Bull nothing equals true. If action not equal to null, return true. I'll see you next time on the Dark Assassins Podcast.